it's because our thoughts contain what we call thinking traps. And in many ways, here's kind of my heavy hitter, like my quick and dirty motto. We got to learn to treat our thoughts like hypotheses, not facts. And welcome back. Welcome aboard to another part train. I'm one of your co-hosts, Evan Singer. I got my partner in crime, our other co-host, Matt Cermak, with me. Up, Ev. How we doing? What a ride we just had on the train. I'm about enjoying the ride. This is one of the best interviews we've had in a while. I know we say that a lot, but so Dr. Good. Kevin Chapman is one of the best in anxiety, stress management, and sports performance psychology so we'll get to that in a second but first thank you for hopping aboard case you're new our mission on the par train is to help frustrated golfers enjoy the ride again on and off the course because we believe if you can smile through bad golf you can smile through anything we interview pj tour pros best-selling authors ceos mental performance coaches like today with dr kevin chapman and more to make the hardest game in the world feel easy and help you get out of your own way shoot your lowest scores and enjoy the ride we're just trying to make oh yeah mental game more relatable and accessible so that you guys can get lower scores without changing your swing. I mean, Ooh. what could be better than that? Without getting too mechanical, right? Right. Before we get to this episode with Dr. Kevin Chapman, quick word from our new friends and sponsors at 18 Birdies, the number one golf GPS and swing analyzer app in the world. Number Sorry, what did you one. just say you were looking at on They've the got app store? 45,000 reviews. On the Apple podcast, Apple on the Apple store, 4.9 rating. I mean, Unbel- unbelievable. I mean, you know, I'm a tech guy. I know a good app when I see it. Download it today. Okay. We've got a special par train only private group where we're going to start thinking about doing giveaways. We're going to be able to cheer each other on, look at how we're performing. We get scorecards sent to us every week showing us their par train rides and how they bounce back after a blow up. And now we can all be in the same group, track each other's performance. But more importantly than that, that's the fun stuff. Okay? That is that's the fun like, part. that's the fun part. It's going to be fun for us to connect and kind of keep tabs on how we're all doing and have leaderboards and giveaways and stuff. But I mean, this app is a game changer. So sir, I don't know if I told you this 18 birdies has data that premium data. subscribers Shave four shots off their score. You guys, you can join the um, free trial. Use the link in our show notes of this episode. It's also linked in our bio at the par train on all of our social accounts. The stuff that you're going to use the most, I think, is on-course GPS. So if Mm. you spray one right or left and you can't shoot the pin, the premium app not only tells you the yardage, but it tells you what it is playing. So you've got actual yardage. You've got plays like yardage. It shows you wind, strength, and direction. Right. And it's like having a caddy in my pocket. It's a key point. When you can't can't get the yardage and you buy that fancy rangefinder to do all that stuff. But there are moments when you can't. But even even with the rangefinder, sir, I'm like, I can't always shoot the front of the green with great accuracy. Yeah. So having that next to me. About elevation. Think about blind shots. Yeah. You know? And so just having this app, I found helped me commit, you know, speaking of the mental game, it really helped me feel like I had a caddy with me and every shot I enter my scores in the app it takes two seconds. It's super easy to use and it'll help your game and it'll make the game more fun with us competing. And, against each other. You know, when you, when Evan makes double bogey in that 310 yard hole, dog like left is because Whoa. he hit driver off the tee. Yeah. You know, he should have hit four iron, 
then he comes back with a birdie. But you know what he's doing out of the course now, yeah. you know, and you kind of get to you look at his mental game and his decisions, you know. So download the 18 birdies app, use our link in our show notes. It'll drop you into the group and uh, get the free trial. Let's Thanks go. to uh, 18 birdies. And we can all get better. Shave four strokes off your game. Dr. Kevin Chapman. I mean, this guy. So to give people context, uh, Dr. Brett McCabe, uh, PJ Tour sports psychologist, coaches John Rahm, number one player in the world. Heard of him? Uh, he's been on the show three times, one of our favorite guests. And after the last time we had him on, about maybe a month and a half, two months ago, um, he said, you need to get Dr. Chapman on your show. He's the best communicator that I've ever met. Mm -hmm. He's an expert, one of the top experts on anxiety and performance psychology. He's a former college athlete, uh, ran track and football. And he got his PhD from Louisville and now has this amazing practice in Louisville, Kentucky, as well as he's helped college programs, University of Louisville. The list goes on and on. The bottom line is I, I now know what Brett's talking about. Yeah. I mean, Dr. Kevin Chapman was so crystal clear on how he talks about anxiety, gives you the tools to how you can perform and regulate that and why anxiety could be a good thing um, instead of trying to avoid it. So I really think this episode, if you're newer to the show or if you've listened for five years, could really help take your game to the next level simply because of how Dr. Chapman walks us through how to think through it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. We dive a lot, a lot into golf, obviously, situations. Uh, to, to parallels between other sports, he works with an array of athletes. Um, so we kind of go back and forth there. Got into Tiger and Charlie, really fun. Has a re- he has a really good breakdown of what's happening there with their, like Charlie's success as a kid. Um, some great quotes, too, Ev. You know, I'll share one. He talked about treat negative feelings like an hypothesis, not facts. Yeah. Think about that. He gets into it and um, just a fired up guy. I mean, that's the kind of guy you want to work with. Yeah. He's not only because it's heady stuff, guys, like you know, you're listening to this episode, but the way he communicates it, like Brett said, he's the best communicator. It's going to get you excited and a lot of good nuggets. It's just an absolute incredible interview. Yep. Well, we thank Dr. Kevin Chapman for coming aboard the train and we hope this really helps you guys. Thank you as always for listening. Um, If we've added any value, give us a review at Apple Podcasts. And now Spotify has the ability to give us five stars. Freaking time. Um, So go on Spotify, give us a review at Apple Podcasts, share your experiences so other people can be inspired by your uh, experiences. We've been getting some great reviews lately. So thank you as always for leaving those. Give us a follow at The Par Train on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok are probably the best three. And no matter how much anxiety, you might be feeling or how much shame you might be feeling after a bad shot or how much you're identifying with your performance. What's the way that people break out of that? Just, just enjoy the ride. Enjoy all of it, guys, the ups and the downs and ride it like a wave. Dr. Chapman talks all about it. Take care guys. Dr. Kevin Chapman on the train. Welcome aboard. I appreciate it. It's a, it's a pleasure. I really appreciate you all reaching out to me. Well, we appreciate you coming on. And Kevin, what a perfect morning to be chatting. I was telling Cermak off air that, so I'm in Northern California this week with my fiance's family, soon to be in-laws. 
And we got an emergency wake up at 6 a.m., had to drive to her brother's house, which was flooding. Their draining system was failing. Water was coming towards the house. I was shoveling sand into sandbags from 6. I had to leave early for this because I didn't want to miss this. Talk about, a, talk about a morning and a situation <laughs> filled with anxiety and stress. And so what a perfect morning to be talking. I'm excited to chat with you. Yeah, no doubt. I love talking about anxiety because it's something, honestly, Evan, that we all have. So it's not a matter of whether or not we have it. It's a matter of how do we respond to it. So, Yep. So I got a fun question to start us off here. I saw on your Twitter at Dr. K Chap, great follow, by the way, um, (laughs) that you were pretty damn excited about Spider-Man No Way Home and the new Matrix movie. Okay. Now, which character (laughs) do you think has better mental skills to manage their state in high stress scenarios shoot i didn't expect that question but you're right like i'm, I'm like a huge... throw a curveball yeah no doubt that's definitely a curveball so <laughs> in terms of compared to the matrix in spider-man are you saying in either movie wow if you had to choose you know as them against each other who do you think okay. has the better mental skills um, I, well, I would probably say Neo, honestly. I mean, I'm a huge Marvel stan, but I think the whole thing about Peter Parker and his character arc that makes him special is that he's a teenager technically, right? And he's yeah. evolving. So his arc is evolving and he has to deal with a lot of uncertainty and not always the best way, right? I think he finally arrives, but then you got Neo who found his way and then ultimately was just about that action. <laughs> so he's somebody <laughs> who was really present focused and was like, it is what it is. I'm doing this because I choose to, which is what he said in the third Matrix. And then he starts like giving hands to one of the Anderson dudes, right? So I, I probably would say right now, Neo. Okay. <laughs> and All fun right. fact, Doc, I got the, it was like one of the biggest thrills, just because we're talking about this, I have to tell you. Yeah. It's one of the biggest thrills of my life. Um, my fiance's friend works at Sony and she oh, runs shoot. the premieres. So t- a week ago, I got invited to go to the world premiere on the red carpet with Tom Holland, trying to like grab him, get him on the show because he's a big golfer. (laughs) But imagine, I don't know if you've seen it yet, but imagine seeing that movie in the theater with the actors. It was like one of the craziest, like pinch me moments of my life. That's crazy. Just grinning the whole time. Yeah. These people were cheering, going nuts. It was awesome. (laughs) Yeah, guaranteed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I well, definitely have seen Spider-Man. Y'all, y'all, y'all should know that, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Kevin, again, welcome to the show for the first time. We heard so much about you. As you know, we're a golf podcast show, but we really mm-hmm. tie into life and mental games. So for our listeners, as we're kind of getting to know you here, talk about your relationship with the game. You know, you, have you played? Have you haven't played? Who you've worked, you know, potentially worked with um, that are golfers? Just so for some context for everybody. Yeah, yeah. So I guess my uh, first knowledge of the game of golf, aside from just watching it as just anybody would who loves sports, and I was a two-sport athlete in college, so naturally I like pretty much most sports, right? And I think that when I became a clinical psychologist and did sports performance enhancement, my first go with that was I was the performance team psychologist at the University of Louisville. And one of the sports that was introduced to me initially, I mean, it's a takes one to know one, right? So being a former athlete myself, college athlete, Obviously, I love working with athletes and their mental health, but also their mental game in addition to just working with clients with anxiety. One of the teams that you all would not be shocked by that reached out to me quite a bit when I started that journey 
well over a decade ago was the golf team. And in working with the women's golf team at the University of Louisville, I encountered a coach who was extremely psychologically savvy, understood the mental game very well, but knew that the ladies on the team at the time would kill it at practice, right? But then lay an egg during competition, right? Like totally destroying it during practice rounds and stuff like that. But absolutely, it's like, where'd those skills go? So starting there, like I started working with that team, started working with other golfers. When I launched out into private practice, then I started attracting a whole lot of different golfers, right? Aside from other athletes, but professional athletes, LPGA athletes, some of which I worked with at UofL, um, other athletes, amateur athletes, club level athletes. So ultimately, as you all know, again, golf is one of the most mental games, the most mental game on the planet. And, you know, again, when I started seeing clients, golf was one of the number one prospects for obvious reasons. Very cool. No, that's, that's great. And you know, obviously we had saw that you, you ran track in, in college. I, we always like to kind of look, look back at our younger selves, Kevin. So if you look back at your younger self as a, as a track collegiate track athlete and everything, you know, now about the mental game, about mental performance and anxiety, is there anything you wish you would have been able to approach from the mental perspective then yeah maybe could have made you better curious that's a that's a great question and uh less so in football because i play football too i play running back in college and you know i was kind of rock solid like your boy neo in that but in 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 track i'd say if i could go back in track because i was i was i had a really strong mental game in track honestly in fact the local newspaper of my college wrote an article my sophomore year in college basically saying that I was mentally tough as a sophomore. Mm-hmm. But if I had to go back, what I'd say is I was the runner up in the 100 meters and 200 meters as a freshman. And it was devastating, if I'm being honest, because I think I got hosed. I got the wrong lane assignments. It was just a bad setup. The prelims got rained out, even though I had the fastest time going into the finals. And I just like literally when I saw someone close to me, at the end of the races, both of them, the 100 and 200, even though I was winning both of those, I just kind of like lost it at the end. I got tight, got anxious and, and became the runner up. And I vowed to myself at that point, that would never happen again. And ironically it did. <laughs> so <laughs> if I could use those same skills to manage anxiety and to regulate emotions as a freshman, I would have been the conference champion for four years instead of three. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too in yeah. football, right? Football is such a team game. Yep. But if you think about the most successful organization over the last couple decades, the coaching staff is their mantra is do your job, right? Which is if I'm going to relate football to golf, you look at the singular job of each individual and yep. what we call it is executional keys. Mm-hmm. They're basically, basically teaching that to say, focus on what you're doing. And if everyone does that, we're going to go in the right direction. We're going to win, right? But the other thing that the Patriots do is they create game plans for the individuals, what their yep. team does best. Whereas I think a lot of coaches, and I'd be curious to hear your experience at Louisville and other programs that kind of have a system, and it's yeah. like you have to adapt to my system. Right. And I'm curious why, obviously it's more work, but I'm curious why more coaches don't lean into the individual focused let me create a game plan that's best for the talent that i have the personalities that i have curious to get your thoughts on that yeah that's a really really loaded but good question evan and i think that i mean there's other there's a lot of reasons why i think that's the case i mean i just literally did for my role as one of the mental health experts for an organization called true sport 
we just came out with a lesson and literally it was on the topic of how do coaches motivate athletes and the the take-home message is essentially what you're asking and that is reinforcement is always way more powerful than punishment and i think Mm -hmm. in many ways i think a lot of coaches come from their ogs right they're old school in the sense that do as i say and i think that the main construct related to that honestly evan is what we call obedience you know, generationally speaking, I think that a lot of coaches grew up in this idea of, well, just be obedient because I said so, kind of like a parent. Well, why do I have to do that, mom? Because I said so with no explanation. And I think that that un- unfortunately now fails to take into consideration there's cultural differences across athletes. There's demographic differences across athletes. We have different experiences as athletes. And I think ultimately, in order for us to lead to that culture that we're talking about of winning games, right? Winning Super Bowls, winning matches, et cetera. We have to have everybody wherever they are, meeting them where they are to follow a similar process, which leads to the team outcome. And I think that that's where a lot of coaches fall short is that they have this idea that I'm going to cling to what I was taught regardless of other evidence and therefore dot, dot, dot. Yeah, totally. I want to go back to to track and you being such an accomplished track athlete, on your sprint, you're ready. You're thinking about it before the gun pressure's on. It's like the first tee. I ran track in eighth grade. Some of that, yep. even running a relay race with your buddies, the, yep. that pressure, but to be in that moment, to be ready, you feel that. What were your keys? Because I think there is a parallel to that first tee shot, always nervous over whether it's with your buddies or at a tournament. Because if you don't Just get a like, good start, it, you know, yeah, that, that... it's everything, especially yeah. when you're running yeah. the hundreds. So I want right. what did, Right. Talk about that a little bit. Absolute facts, bro. And I think that <clears throat> that's a great question. And I think you'll like this because this is one of those soundbite sort of moments. I had a coach in high school. It's relevant. I had a coach in high school who used to say, if you ain't hype, something ain't right. And to this day, I still recall what that means to me today. And that's for the golfers out there listening as well. Anxiety is a normal part of competition. Normal part of competition. Normal. So to acknowledge that me being anxious is necessary for me to have a good performance is the first key, honestly. It's not something I need to push away or suppress. Like, that's where people get it wrong back to Evan's question about coaches. It's like, no, I'm supposed to be anxious, coach. In fact, I'm supposed to be hyped, right? The key is can I optimize that anxiety knowing that if I'm about to run and come out of the blocks and I have a four-by-one relay, especially I was the anchor, so I'm watching three legs <laughs> and making sure that my guys are exchanging the baton until it gets to me at least, right? Yeah. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm supposed to be anxious about this, but how do I take that arousal and optimize it so that I can crush the ball from the tee shot, right? How can I take this moment and shoot out of the blocks, right? Like I just shot yeah. out of a cannon. Knowing that anxiety is normal is the first key for sure. And knowing that that is the case will help me, will propel me in and of itself to have a very powerful performance. And I think the other thing I'd say is shifting my attention to success as opposed to failure. A lot of coaches have what I call, and a lot of athletes have a failure avoidant mentality versus a success seeking mentality. And the difference is I'm playing not to look bad or not to lose as opposed to playing to win. You see what I'm saying? So knowing we smoked them last time or knowing that I'm the defending champion, knowing that I'm capable of going below, you know, 10 seconds and so on and so forth. I think knowing that and shifting my attentional focus away from the arousal to the actual cue or the task at hand will lead me to trust my process, which leads to the outcome of winning. 
Yeah, and Kevin, we talk a lot about this. We call it playing offense or playing defense, right? And I think what a lot of people get mixed up is in golf, when they hear us say play offense, they think play aggressive. But when we talk to PJ Tour pros and we talk to guys like Brett, the thing we hear over and over is play aggressive to conservative targets. That's good. Think your way through your tendencies, you know, your misses, um, what happens when you're under pressure, the conditions, what clubs give you the most comfort to remove the tension. And then you commit, you pick your spot, and you rip it, right? Yep. The bad stuff comes when you hang back trying to avoid the miss. And ironically, and maybe this is where we go next, Kevin, the thing that I love the most about this stuff is it's so counterintuitive. It's almost almost a game of opposites, right? Trying not to miss leads to misses. Trying not (laughs) to fail makes you fail. And for people that don't have the mental training and the awareness skills, it's very hard to grasp. So. For someone that doesn't have experience with this, for someone that's maybe listening to our show for one of the first times, how do you ease someone in to something so counterintuitive? Yeah, it's a terrific, terrific home run sort of question. And what I would say to that, Evan, is first of all, what I'm big on, and I think Brett probably has alluded to this, but something I talk a lot about in my work and one of the themes and what I say to people who are trying to get their mental game on point, if you will, is the importance of regulating emotion. And I think that, again, you ask me about anxiety. I think the first and foremost, most important key is really what we're talking about on the golf course, just like with any other sport, is stress reactivity. How am I going to react to emotions that I experience when I'm playing? And I think the key is recognizing that if I get anxious, frustrated, excited, sad, angry, whatever the emotion is, I have to first and foremost know All of those emotions are a part of the sport and all of those emotions are adaptive if I understand what they're trying to tell me. I think that's huge. I think it makes sense to teach techniques and strategies, which I'm big on, but I think we have to start with a foundation. And that is saying, first of all, don't judge your emotions. If you're salty about a bad shot, that means you care. But what do you do to respond to that? If I'm upset because I didn't win a, you know, a certain match of some sort, then that's okay. But how do I respond to that? Right. So the key is recognizing my emotions are adaptive. Step one. Number two is what is the emotion trying to tell me? Case in point, anxiety. Anxiety is always a future-oriented emotion, right? It involves thoughts of uncontrollability and unpredictability of future events. Anxiety is a part of golf, right? The key is can I respond to that anxiety in a way that is adaptive? So I'd say the most important first tip before you talk about any sort of strategy it's saying, first of all, my emotions are adaptive. What are they trying to tell me? Kevin, I grew up playing golf. I played in college, played Division One at Missouri State. So, you know, I you know, was played at a pretty high level. You know, didn't play in the tour, but you know, a lot of experience in tournament play. As a kid, my coach would say to me, pressure is just a story that you tell yourself. Mm-hmm. So for you, I want to dig in how we compare anxiety and pressure because you're, I mean, I don't need to tell you that you're right, but when you talk about anxiety is normal. It is normal, right? It's just like that excitement, that uncertainty that I want to do. I want to do great today and it's taking over me. That's one thing, right? But then pressure is that he says, it's a story you tell yourself because you're, you know, you're creating this narrative about the situation. So curious to get your thoughts, how you compare and, you know, talk with your students. Yeah, Yeah. So the difference between pressure and anxiety, I do agree with that. I think that that's at least halfway accurate in terms of 
pressure is perception, right? So on the one hand, if I perceive my situation as I have a lot of pressure, whether it be from myself or someone else, that is in my control. And I think that's essentially the teaching point of what you're saying, honestly, Matt, is that, you know, this pressure is something based upon how I'm interpreting the situation at hand, whether it be golf or life or whatever it may be. I can interpret the same situation differently than you, Matt, and yet not have the same emotional experience. So that proves that things don't cause me to feel a certain way. My response or my interpretation of it is what does. And that right there is money, right? Right? And that's important. (laughs) But on the other hand, I think there is something to say, especially in sports culture, that there are actual pressures as well. Now, granted, there is still a role to play for me in interpreting things that way, right? But if someone is on my back constantly about, if you don't make this shot, then this is going to happen. Or if you don't win this tournament, then we're taking this from you or whatever it might be. That's actual pressure, right? Now, though my interpretation of that still matters and is in my control, that's still stress if you want to go there, regardless of that. And my stress reactivity is still in my control, but it's something people have to learn. And that's why you guys know as well as I do, we're talking about skills. People aren't born with this stuff. These are things people have to learn. And it's a mindset shift that needs to be taught. Well, and Kevin, what's so tough, what's so when overcoming pressure, for an example, my freshman year in Illinois, you got to go to regionals and you got to go to sectionals and sectionals right. get you down state for golf. Yep. I'm a freshman. I'm coming down the stretch. I'll never forget this. I'm, you should take 76 to get out. And I was two over par with three, three to play. Yep. <laughs> and I knew where I was at. I'd never been down state. I'm, ne- I'm a freshman first chance. So right. I don't have the experience of doing it. And what did I do? I bogeyed the last three holes. I got yep. tentative. And then next year, sectionals, I won. Right. I won sectionals. Yep, exactly. Why, why, how, do we, how do we work through that better? Why is it so difficult when we don't have the experience? That pressure yeah. just mounted on me. It suffocated me. I think that, Matt, you actually absolutely murdered that example. I think that, that I think the key, the answer to your question is in your example. And I think that we have to, what I often call clinically a functional analysis, we have to look back and say, what did I learn? That's what I tell athletes to do. What did I learn from this round? What did I learn from this competition to give me two to three bullet points? I think you just get a, did a good job of that. You took two examples, literally the parallel of my track experience, my freshman and sophomore year, literally, right? <laughs> is that if I said like quite literally, it's crazy. But if you look back at what you said, you pointed out two very important factors. One is your interpretation of those last three holes was way different your freshman year and your sophomore year, just like it was my freshman and sophomore year. And I think you just nailed it. So about pressure, my ability to think or interpret or appraise is another word we use. This, these last three holes, a certain way will dictate my physiological arousal, how I interpret that and how that would translate into my mechanics, period, the end. So I think it's a matter of saying, how did I think about these last three holes, which in reality, the three of us know you shouldn't be thinking about the last three holes. You need to be thinking about this shot. <laughs> but that's another right. right. You know, so, but then the, the experience calmed me that next year and I had to get up and down exactly. the last hole to win. And I did it. <laughs> yep. All right, guys, we're going to take a quick break here from one of our brand new sponsors. And then we'll get you right back to the show. You're not going to want to fast forward through this one. Trust me. So I was reflecting the other day, guys. Okay. And I was thinking, wouldn't it be crazy if we all had our own caddies? Not just a caddy at the club you play at or whatever, but literally your own dedicated caddy playing with buddies wherever. Wouldn't it be sweet if we had a caddy 
that always gave us the perfect yardage for every shot. They factored in the wind. They factored in the elevation. They factored in how cold it was, right? A caddy that kept our stats, that told you that 90% of the time you miss the fairway to the right, right? So maybe that helps you with their alignment off the tee or maybe club selection. Or a caddy that kept track of your scores, right? And told you where your handicap was trending. But also, more importantly, told you where your buddies were shooting that week too. You can kind of compete thanks to your caddy for keeping track of it. Maybe even a caddy who, you know, is great with on course, but also happens to be a swing instructor and can look at your swing and say, hey, you're getting a little too inside. Let's get you back on plane, right? 18 birdies is basically your own caddy in your pocket. I'm telling you, it's the number one GPS swing analyzer app in the world. And the app is an absolute game changer. They have data that says for premium users, and I'll get you a free trial as being a part train listener. Premium users on the 18 birdies app, on average, shave four shots off their handicap. Four. How crazy is that? I played with it the other day, and, you know, I don't hit the fairway every time. So the yardages, the plays like yardages, it was a game changer. But more importantly, guys, that's all great. Like, your game's going to get better. It's guaranteed. It's in the data, right? And I know you guys care about getting better if you listen to this show. And we're working on your mental game. The par train for the mental game and 18 birdies app for on course and stat tracking and swing analyzing, it's pretty much a deadly combo, right? But I think the coolest part and the big reason why I want you to download the 18 birdies app is because I'm starting a private par train group. And look, we get DMs of your scorecards every week. So now it's all going to be in one place. It's going to say who's leading the week in best score, who's leading the week in this stat and this stat, and we got our own little leaderboard, and it's going to be super fun. Okay, so I'm going to get you a free trial of this app, and all you got to do is hit the show notes of this episode and tap the link in those show notes, and that'll take you to download the app and join our group automatically. So it's super easy. It's going to improve your game. We don't just promote anything, right? This is the number one app in the world for this stuff. I come from tech, so I know a good app when I see it. And this is good stuff, guys. So join us on the 18 Birdies train. Enter your scores. Improve your game. Shave four shots off your handicap. And let's start challenging each other to get even better in 2022. Thanks, guys. Let's get back to the show. My most... (laughs) embarrassing story in my life i'm gonna share on air because i think it might help some people (laughs) so my junior year um i was baseball player baseball was my sport but i also played soccer and i was thinking junior year i'm on varsity with baseball i'm like i don't want to do soccer i just want to focus all my friends convinced me no just imagine running out of the the tunnel and everyone's cheering on the big field and we're gonna be traveling together and i was a gamer Like, I didn't do as well, actually, in practice. I was better, actually, in competition because I wasn't thinking as much, right? And I wasn't committed to trying out, but I did it for other people. So here I am in a tryout where everything is drills, running competitions. I was more of a sprinter, so the the two-mile under 12 minutes thing was, like, really tough for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just remember being riddled with anxiety and fear because the entire time I didn't feel like I belonged and the weirdest thing happened like like you two I grew up as a natural athlete like I didn't have a ton of training 
with soccer. I wasn't the most skilled player, but man, I could body you off the ball and I could score. Right. Right. And I just remember that week of tryouts, I was a different player. Like you never, I was shanking (laughs) balls on crosses. I couldn't, I, I couldn't, I had no feel. I had no ball skills and I will never forget this day. I'm walking down the hallway. Everyone's looking at me and I can tell by their looks that my name is on that cut list. And I've never been cut or not picked in the top three of anything I had ever played. Right. And here I right. am in with all my friends begging me to play. And it was a social thing. That's why I did it. And I didn't make the team. And, you know, as an athlete, that was as embarrassing as it gets because I identified yeah. with it. Yep, right. Sure and if anyone can take something from this show, I hope you see the impact that of what our thoughts then creates our feelings and then our actions, like you talk about, Doc, yep. of like, I would became a different player. Mm-hmm. And if mm-hmm. there's anyone that calls themselves pessimists or doesn't think that this stuff is real, it's real. I'm, yeah, I it got is. cut because of it. So I just wanted to share that. I hope someone, it resonates with someone. That's powerful. And what I'd add to that, Evan, briefly is another conversation. And it it really like is uncomfortable for people, but I go with people with the stuff because if we want to be mentally tough and elite, we got to be honest with ourselves, just like you were. And honestly, a lot of this has to do with most athletes. You and I know you all will nod and amen what I'm about to say, I promise. It's because most athletes equate their identity to their performance. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's a huge problem because when I do that, that means I did not just not make the team. I suck as a person, period. And that is a trap, bro. Like, because people, when we do that, that's where we have to start too with many people is get them to reprogram themselves and not do that. Well, I let down myself. I let down my teammates. I let down my coach. I let down my family. My friends are watching my scores. Going back to golf for a second, right? Boy, I've been there bad. We've all been there. We all have. One thing I want to touch on with that, Kevin, is, you know, when I, some of my guys that I coach, I, the thing that's really helped short circuit their automatic thought patterns is accepting that what they're thinking could be true, right? What they believe to be true could be true, right? Like I have a guy with the the yips and he feels like a failure, right? He's been able to figure out things for his whole life, this thing he can't figure out. But you accept that to be true, but is it helpful? Yeah. Is it productive? Yeah. Is it working? Is that belief, is that story, is that narrative productive? And that's what I found. I'd be curious to hear with your experience how we start working in the right direction. Otherwise, you're constantly just fighting your own stories and beliefs. And any mm-hmm. tactic or tool loses its effectiveness if the belief isn't tied to it as well. Yeah, no, that's powerful, Evan, and I agree with that. Basically, what you're saying in my world is that some thoughts may have some validity to them, but they could be unhelpful or unproductive. Therefore, is it really useful from our process to say it? So that's true on the one hand. And on the other hand, as you know, I think many times when we're unnecessarily anxious about, say, around a golf or something else, it's because our thoughts contain what we call thinking traps. And in many ways, here's kind of my heavy hitter, like my quick and dirty motto. We got to learn to treat our thoughts like hypotheses, not facts. Mm. That's, that, that's huge. I like because that. many I like times that. we, right, exactly. Because many times we treat our thoughts like they're facts, meaning yeah. I suck or, you know, 
on this par five, I'm terrible. Well, if I say that, that sounds like a fact. Not acknowledging that in the past, I've actually done fine, <laughs> right? Like on this par five. But if I say to myself, your body is a gentleman, y'all. It's going to respond to what you tell it. If I say I'm absolutely trash on this par five, my body hears Jaws music every single time. And the only emotion I can experience is anxiety because there's no other option. So I got to learn to identify my thoughts like a scientist and say, this is a hypothesis, not a fact. What are other possibilities as a result of the data that I have? Does that make sense? Yep. Well, one tool for that that I found super helpful, because I, I talk to a coach every week, and I have for years, and it's been one of yeah, the yeah. greatest things for my growth, and I've learned a lot through it. And the thing that more times than not, and you know, I was really lucky, Kevin, where I was taught this stuff when I was 17. I've been doing it for 18 years and I still, week to week, day to day, I have to remember and practice this stuff. And the thing that seems to help me practice and be the scientist in your example yeah. Yeah. is I tell myself, be the observer, yeah. be the observer, be the observer. Yeah. Because a lot of people, and I'd be curious to hear what tools and mm -hmm. either mm -hmm. affirmations or tactics yeah, yeah. work for you and your right. patients, because a lot of people can't break out of the pattern because yep. there's such a strong story with the thoughts that they're saying that they think are facts. Yeah, absolutely true. I guess what I would say to that, I mean, there's, you know, the pregame and then there's during, right? So on the one hand, I think beforehand, what if we want to be really elite, I think the, the best strategy is to identify the theme of thoughts we say to ourselves when we're in a round and it's terrible and we perform like trash. I think when we identify what I'm saying to myself consistently in those rounds, what I'm able to do in advance, because that's the thing. If I prepare in advance, that's the antidote to anxiety is being able to say, how can I prepare in advance for these thoughts that have tripped me up in the past? So if I identify the theme, then I can start countering those. One tool I like is what I call an anxious self-coping self-dialogue. It's kind of like the angel and the devil on your shoulder. Don't steal the meat, Evan. And then it's like, no, steal the freaking meat, Evan, right? Poof. And then they go away. I think the key is saying, what are my anxious thoughts? Well, here's what's going to happen when I get to this part three. The coping self-statement is, well, what's the evidence that I'm going to screw this up? So asking yourself what I call disputing questions. Yeah. What's the evidence this thought is true? Am I 100% sure that this will happen? Do I have a crystal ball? Is another really good scientific question. Mm. What's happened in the past? So those are the questions that I would get golfers who are listening to tuck away to challenge those thoughts before I even get out of the car in order to come up with new adaptive affirmations to help me help propel me to perform well when I'm actually on the course. So I would say using disputing questions, what's the evidence is a good question that this thought is true. Am I 100% sure that this thought is true? Do I have a crystal ball is a good question. And what has happened in the past? Because most people that I know, including golfers, they base things based on their thoughts are based on feelings, not on facts. And I think that right. that's part of the issue is we got to get out of that mentality. Well, and I think what, what and that, that's great. That gets into when you're training your, your players, you've got to, this is your process, right? This is your process on every hole. Now, some holes, some shots are going to make you a little more nervous or more overwhelmed than others. But this still is your process and you right. have to be obsessed with it, right? And if you yeah. get out of your process, that's when the bad swings, that's when the, un, the un, not committed shots happen. Exactly. The biggest reason why I love golf, I've said it before on the show, but to me, it's the ultimate feedback loop. 
There is no, there's nothing maybe in the world that gives you more instant feedback and a mindfulness practice than golf because you could be playing great, just like Matt was saying, and you come down the stretch, something changes in your process, you get lazy or you forget, or you focus on something that's unproductive and suddenly more tension builds and you make a mistake. Anxiety is normal, right? It's a part of it. But you also got to remember in golf, like it's a game of recovery. It's literally designed with things in your way. So what I see with my friends and people I play with is you hit a shot offline, you're behind a tree, you kicking yourself, right? But then what do we do when we're in the trees? We usually have one of our best shots because our focus goes like this. We only have one option. But what we're trying to help people do on this show is to look, those thoughts are going to come up. It's just the amount of time it takes you to get back to your productive process and maybe make a six hole period, go to four, go to three. Maybe it goes to two minutes. Yep. Right. Could be 30 seconds. Yep. But I I just, I love this game so much because it's the ultimate playground to practice this stuff. It is. And it's the one sport on earth. And y'all know this better than I do, but it's the one sport on earth where the amount of time you're actually physically playing is completely disproportionate to how, how long you're on the course. I mean, you're talking up to five hours versus roughly 11 to 13 minutes of actual golf play. Yeah, That's a whole lot of time to think the right or wrong things, right? Yeah. So it's so incredibly important, like you said, Evan, to do what I tell athletes all the time. The one bad skill I want you to possess is having a bad short-term memory. How do I go from that last shot to the very next? Even if I crushed it, how do I go to the very next shot as if it never happened? One thing I want to dig in a little bit more on is story and narrative. And yeah. we do one of our show concepts, Kevin, is called um, Mental Game Mailbag, where we have listeners call in and ask a question. We'll take three to four of them per show. And one of them that sticks out is a guy that really struggled with the layup, which was pretty unique, right? Most people hit some of their best shots in a layup because they're taking less club, you know, it's less pressure. Um, And he kept hitting layup out of bounds and then created a story about it and basically had the same anxiety that someone had with, you know, something out of bounds off the tee and they struggle with the driver. And what's a bigger hit to the ego than hitting a layup out of bounds, one of the easier shots, right? Right. So now he's getting down on himself. I'm a failure. This is embarrassing. And that's when bad stuff happens with fear, avoidance, and embarrassment. So um, I'm just curious on how you help people kind of show them the mirror of these narratives and help them break out of that because the anxiety is going to be there the next time they face it. Yeah, that's a great question, Evan. I think the main, the main point here is anytime I walk through something like that with somebody missing what would be presumably considered a very simple shot, right? A very mechanistic shot that most golfers can hit. I think the key is understanding what we call learned associations. The way this stuff happens to begin with is that the way my brain works is I associate uncomfortable emotional experiences with an outcome. And therefore my brain now reminds me of the next time I have that same scenario of how uncomfortable I was physiologically and therefore it leads to bad mechanics and a negative outcome. That can easily generalize because fear conditioning, which is what I call that, this is no different 
than someone who had a panic attack in the car. This is no different, right, than someone being stopped in an elevator. And I think if we stop and say, all right, this is a learned association, I can relearn this association. Mm-hmm. So first and foremost is educating that individual. First of all, that's a learned association that we can reprogram. Secondly, we have to teach them to have a new non-threatening experience with, say, a layup scenario. So that includes, number one, identifying the thoughts that are at the core of why it's happening to begin with. So once I've identified the culprit, like, oh, I know it's going to happen again, for example, mm-hmm. that thought, right? assumes I have the ability to predict the future and I can't. So therefore, once I identify that thought, I can replace that thought with a more flexible thought, put myself back in layup scenarios repeatedly, using that new thought, using breathing techniques, until my brain can associate that with a good layup, right? Then all of a sudden what happens is when I get in that scenario, I have a new association. So I have these two competing associations. I've had bad layups, but most of my evidence suggests I can kill it. And then that's essentially the process, identifying what are the thoughts associated with it, changing the thoughts to a more flexible one, using breathing skills and such, and repeatedly confronting layup scenarios until my brain associates it as a layup as opposed to, oh crap. Right. We all agree that golf's the toughest mental game, Kevin, right? And as growing up, I always, you know, you talk about what's the hardest sport with your friends and stuff. And I was always kind of jealous of the reactionary sports. I mean, I played other sports too, soccer, basketball, the other ones, because there's just less time to think you catch the, you know, you catch, you catch the, in basketball, you catch that ball at the top of the key, boom, yep. boom, yep. go. Right. Um, so you coach all kinds of athletes. How do you, how do you go back and forth with your athletes? What well, we can learn from all these sports, you know, because in golf, when you're struggling mentally, sometimes you wish you were just more reactionary. The short answer to that is what we find, Matt, and you alluded to this, which was a great question off the glass on a two-on-one fast break, (laughs) is basically we find that there are certain mental skills that cut across all sports. I think the key, though, is being able to identify a mental routine, is what I call it, that is individualized to that athlete in their sport, right? In other words, We know that there are certain mental skills that are true for golf, for ice dancing, for figure skating, for tennis, for basketball and football, such as self-talk. Self-talk is huge, right? Secondly, we know mental imagery is essential literally for neural pathways and neuroplasticity in your brain to see any kind of mechanistic shot of any kind in any sport that's going to be good. So we got mental imagery that's important. We got dealing with anxiety, which is another powerful ingredient and skill. We got dealing with other emotions. We got concentration. These are all elements and ingredients that cut across any sport. The key is knowing the sport and knowing the skills that need to be enhanced and crafting a mental routine for that athlete so that they can learn to focus on their process and not the outcome. What's a good example, Kevin, of helping people with imagery and visualization? Because I actually think this is one of the things that people do last. Yeah. Like it, it takes until you get to a certain yep. level. You hear the pros talk a lot about visualization. Yeah. Um, talk about that and how you work someone through that that has no Shoot. experience with it. 100%. And I like to always use, Evan, a sport that we're not talking about so that's objective to let some, someone apply it to their sport. So let's use a sport that's like random, right? Okay. Good, great example. Gymnastics. Mm-hmm. So on the uneven bars, for example, there's a move on the uneven bars. You know, gymnastics is one of those sports like diving 
like figure skating where the degree of difficulty gets you more points, right? So one example I use a lot with mental imagery is an athlete who was a gymnast who was trying to perfect this move called the Ginga Salto. It's not, it, the point is, is that the Ginga Salto is a difficult move, but if you learn how to do it, you can compete internationally, right? So the bottom line is that I've seen athletes try to attempt these things, whether it be chipping, whether it be the Ginga Salto, whether it be certain moves on the ice, things like that. And they repeatedly fail at it. Well, what we find is one of the most powerful hacks that will get you to do a move or a shot or a Ginga Salto or whatever it may be without you even doing it physically is creating the mental imagery for it over and over and over and over and over creating this, these neural pathways in your brain. So that when I find myself having a certain golf shot, like chipping, like an athlete I was working with yesterday, when I see it for like two seconds, hypothetically, because I've practiced it so many times off, off the course, my brain is downloading the perfect chipping program while I'm on the green and I'm killing it. So I say that to say that mental imagery, I'll be honest, if you don't use mental imagery as a golfer, then we got to talk because I think mental imagery is one of the, the, the most powerful ways to enhance your golf game among anything else without you even shooting. Well, it's crazy. This made me just think of a little bit of Tiger over the weekend. I don't know if you caught him and Charlie <laughs> who, who didn't defeat unless you were out of pocket. Mm -hmm. But yep. the, after the round, after that, their great round on Sunday, it, they asked him about practice and playing and Charlie and all this stuff. And, and if, if you caught this, but he said, the hard, the grind and the hard work is when you're practicing. That's what yeah. it's, it's hard. And what you're describing is that mental imagery work is difficult for a lot of people to work on. That's not Correct. fun. That's not fun. Correct. This is what, and so, and then, you know, that's where you've got to like have that blood, sweat and tears when you're practicing and you're doing the mental imagery, for example, because when you get to the course, that's the fun part. And that's just where my head went when you started, when you go in there. Matt, let me give you an example. <laughs> like when I teach mental imagery, again, when you're on the course, I'm talking like two seconds of mental imagery, right? right? What you don't see is I'm telling that same athlete to be practicing, pressing the loop button on imagery they've recorded on an app for 20 to 25 minutes, distraction-free, AirPods in, club in hand, over and over and over and over and over. Why? Because successful athletes treat practice like competition, so the competition is playing golf. Ah. If you think about it, there, like Matt said, there's nothing fun about it, but there's also, there's, it's more than just not fun. Yeah. You're not getting the gratification of seeing the result from it. That. And a lot of people, and that's what, that, why the mental game can be challenging for people. Because right. people are leaning into the swing yeah. and physical things because they can get an immediate feedback. Correct. Right. And mental imagery, I think that's probably why so few amount of people do it because the proof is not in the pudding right away. And nope. you have to have faith that as you keep doing it, good things will happen. And the best athletes talk like that in every yes, interview. They, do. they all they do. say things like that. I'm just going to keep chugging away, keep yes, chugging like we like to say on the train, and you keep doing your stuff yep. and you keep doing the right things and you're going to be putting more situations and the more situations of being quote in um contention right yep. a lot of top players their goals are to be in contention because the more opportunities right. they have the more chances they have to win yep that's money right there powerful yep i agree evan back to tiger and charlie because it's all the rage right 
doctor, what do you see when you see a Charlie Woods, 12, 13 years old? I mean, he's obviously got his dad is the greatest ever, but this sort of demeanor, this sort of style, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's unbelievable to watch, you know, and um, <laughs> what's Tiger telling them, right? What are they like together when they're on the range? I, I'd love to get your thoughts on just what we're seeing here with this. <laughs> Matt asking the, 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 the maniacal <laughs> laugh questions right here. Yeah. Well, the, th- the thing from where I sit, right? Like I see, I see outcome differently than other people, right? I watch what athletes do and I have a completely different formulation than just kind of the naked eye because I'm trained to do that. And in this scenario, it encourages me because what we're seeing with Tiger and Charlie is no different than what we're trying to preach to athletes now. Most of the time, athletes see me or Brett McCabe or somebody like that for interventions. They never think preventatively. Mm-hmm. And when we teach athletes early on that mental skills, oh, by the way, spoiler alert, transcend golf and will help you with, I don't know, an exam or interacting with people or to yeah. deal with a difficult coworker. Mm-hmm. And you teach that early in life. My toughest athletes, Matt, the mentally tough ones are the young ones, the mm-hmm. ones that are like 10. Because they're like, yes, sir, I'll do whatever you say. This is going to give me an edge. Let's go. Mm-hmm. They have something other athletes don't. And this is exactly what we're seeing. We're seeing someone take their son, right, who definitely has pressure, obviously, yeah. but also teaching them mental skills that young. Think about how much of a monster that kid's going to be when he's older. Yeah. Yeah. Well, do you think Charlie's playing defensive? <laughs> no. no. That kid nah. is all offense. And no. he has – and that's what playing offense, I think – I reflect too. And like, what are the, okay, the days that I'm playing well and and even like flag football, softball, like things that I do now that it's not high school sports anymore, but like my version of like, I'm still thinking about this stuff because like I want to perform, right? It's my glory days, as you say. And there's like a little bit of a swagger, you know, there's a little bit of a, a cockiness, but also I found that when I play my best, I'm joking around a little bit, but I'm also like, I'm ri- like Tiger likes to do. I'm ribbing a little bit. I got confidence and I'm very calm. Now, not everybody's like that, right? Some people run hot like Brett talks about. But yep, yep, um, yep, yep. it's interesting to think about what maybe use Charlie for people listening. Use Charlie to then reflect on what works for you. Think <clears throat> about what states and what thoughts you think of what helped you play your best and then lean yep. into that, right? And then flip side, think about what prevents you from playing well and i too. think the key to that too evan is like recognizing what is my general disposition toward emotion as well because like you take a kid like charlie you can infer that he's not high in what i call trait neuroticism and trait neuroticism is basically a tendency to experience negative emotions coupled with the perception that the world is threatening and i'm ill-equipped to cope people who run high on anxiety and sadness and things like that anger right hot hits if you will tend to be high in neuroticism. So their perception of emotions in and of themselves are problematic. But the key is what are my traits, right? Am I high in extroversion? Am I conscientious? Am I these things? And start there and then start figuring out how do I need to learn how to respond and reprogram myself to use emotions as fuel as opposed to something that's going to suppress and make me perform poorly. Yeah. I always felt for me, Kevin, the the never ending challenge of you know, performing at a high level of golf all the time is figuring out when to be focused and when to be relaxed. Yep. yep. That balance. Right. And that's what you're yep. going through with your players day in and day out. 
right? Yep. And you, you know in your head when you're supposed to be focused. Yeah. When it's you get into that, when it's your turn to hit. And you know yep. when you're supposed to be relaxed when it's not your turn to hit. But it's hard to blend. It's a never-ending battle, but we shouldn't treat it so much as a battle, right? We should treat it as a a challenge, right? A, well, an opportunity. And I, yeah, man. And I and I think of golfers, again, disproportionate amount of time on the course, small amount of time actually playing. I yeah. think about, I mean, pick your arrow shooter. I'm a huge Marvel fan. Y'all already out of me. You can pick <laughs> Kate Hawkeye. Bishop or Hawkeye. You already know. Yeah. Or we could say Katniss Everdeen, or we could say Legolas. I don't care who your bow and arrow shooter is. I like Legolas. Mm-hmm. I like all of them. Well, I said them, right? But <laughs> but I'd say if you think about your golf game, is I have a quiver of arrows, and I have skills that are mental that I can use to stay focused, to stay relaxed, to regulate anxiety, to respond when I went eagle, <laughs> to st- pretend it didn't happen and move on to the next shot. Like I have a number of arrows in my quiver that I should be able to equip myself with to focus as much as humanly possible on my process of playing golf as opposed to the outcome. The outcome will follow. Y'all know that. It's crazy how fast the time has gone. We could go for four hours. <laughs> That's but, um, I did want to make sure, because you spoke to it a little bit, Kevin, about mm-hmm. coworkers, family, right? Yeah. A lot of people have anxiety around the holidays. Yeah. You know, spending time with family where there's a lot of baggage or experiences of things that, look, I find that there are some experiences that take more work than others. Clearly we have more yeah. trauma and things in with those. Maybe take an example from what we've talked about as a golfer and yeah. help people relate that to their lives. Cause that's the real purpose of this show. If we're struggling in any, in any facet of life, whether it be golf or interacting with a family member, bringing up something political or taboo at the holiday table, you know, things that we had that happen. Keep in mind that anything that's going to drive my anxiety or distress about that interaction, golf, family member, et cetera, is typically what I call IOU. And IOU means the intolerance of uncertainty. And intolerance of uncertainty is one of the things that people who struggle with anxiety really struggle with. It's I can't control the predict outcome. So I'm going to fret about it as an illusion of control, which makes it worse, right? In golf or with interactions, et cetera. Now, here's the, here's the point I want to make. Uncertainty is uncomfortable, but it is not threatening. And I think that if we can say to ourselves, as we're preparing for any sort of future interaction, whether it be with our sport, with golf, or whether it be with family or somebody else, knowing that the uncertainty is certainly uncomfortable, but it's tolerable, prepares me to pick out thoughts in advance, to prepare to be flexible, to go into that interaction, with a learning mentality and to say that though anxiety is uncomfortable, it's harmless. Though anxiety is present, it's something I can regulate and know that I can learn something new, which is I can tolerate the distress, I think is a key element. And the more I repeat that, Evan, the more I continue to put myself in that same situation proactively, the more my brain will associate that as a win. And I think that's key. We can't have one trick ponies. We can't go do it once and say, oh, Hashtag wipes brow. I have to proactively confront situations multiple times so that I can have a new learned association, whether that be with golf or with a person. Yeah. And like, and like we talked about, Kevin, like I know Brett said this to you. Anxiety is the bully at recess. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. Other people say it's welcoming the dragon in, right? Yep. One of the guys I work with, we named his yip. Yep. Uh, 
a name that he has a positive connotation with. And yep. just like you said, it's going to be there. Yep. The discomfort, anxiety is going to be there. The stress response will be there. It's the fighting that gives him more power. Correct. So welcome Correct. them in. Welcome them in. Move forward because you know that you have the tools to regulate it. And I think and I that would, is so huge. I, and let me add one more thing to that. Yeah. What I call it the emotional law of gravity. What goes up must come down. And ride the wave is one of the most powerful things I can say to myself, knowing that distress mm -hmm. does this if I let it. So the key is riding the wave and knowing what goes up must, must come down. And that is true for any emotion I experience. Mm. Great. I love that. And, and what I got a lot out of today was you got to do the work. Yeah, facts. <laughs> you just got to go do the work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this yep. is great. Well, I love this. If you guys aren't following Kevin Chapman, follow him at Dr. K Chap on Twitter, drkevinchapman.com. Is there anything else that we didn't get to today <clears throat> that I'm going to give you your soapbox? Okay. Is there anything else that you want to close with to either reiterate? or bring up that we didn't get to? Well, I think I'd say reiterate, your performance is not your identity. If you're a golfer, you're about 50 or 60 other things too. I think that's critical for somebody listening because in many ways, we all have bad performances, period, right? Interacting with people, golfing, shooting shots, dropping something, spilling, being clumsy, whatever it may be. But how I perform is not who I am. And when I can separate those two concepts and recognize I'm a lot of things, then I'll be able to sleep at night and say, my performance isn't my identity. If I follow my process, it will absolutely lead to my outcome. Love it. You hear Rory right talk there. about that a lot lately, um, especially around the Masters. Well, yep. Kevin, thank you so much for hopping aboard. Um, yeah, and we're big fans. We're going to be following you along, rooting you on. We'd love to have you back at some point. Yeah, and, likewise. Uh, I appreciate was, it. This was great. Yeah, thank you. Take care, Thanks, guys. Kevin.